Okay, good morning, everyone. Today, what I would like to do is continue your discussion about sleep, but focus on the sleep disorders that can be diagnosed. And then the second part of the lecture series will be the trauma, stressor, and dissociative disorders. And then we'll call it a week of psychopathology. You've already had a good hour of physiology involved in sleep. What I've done with this first slide is just highlighted a few features of the stages of sleep that are particularly relevant in helping to differentially diagnose some of the problems. And we'll be referring back to this slide, for example, as we're trying to figure out whether someone is actually in REM sleep or whether they're not in REM sleep. And that can help eliminate some of the possible disorders, knowing just what stage of sleep that they're in and that the problem's occurring in. These are the diagnoses that are possible based on DSM, so we'll go through the requirements for each of these. And keep in mind that if we're going to call these psychiatric conditions, we're probably not going to say, for example, if you have problems sleeping and, and the problem sleeping persists, we're probably not going to call you someone who has insomnia disorder because if your problem related to sleep was due to depression, remember that is a symptom of depression, I'm not going to say you have MDD and say you're insomniac. We don't need to do that. If the reason why you can't sleep is because your back's hurting and that's why you can't sleep. If there's another reason for your sleep disturbance, we're not going to call it a psychiatric issue. As you've learned, a major tool for diagnosing sleep problems is polysomnography. But a huge tool of our trade in trying to identify what's going on with your sleep is just the plain old interview, asking you the right questions. Because most people who come to sleep disorder clinics come in and say, I'm just tired all the time and I don't know why. And there's a lot of different reasons why people are tired all the time. This excessive daytime somnolence. That's always the, well, not always, majority of times the presenting com complaint. Excessive daytime somnolence. Why am I tired all the time? So we ask a lot of questions and we try to get out what might be causing you to be tired, even though you seem to be getting a reasonable amount of sleep. And it might be apnea, it might be narcolepsy, it might be restless leg, it might be a lot of different causes. One thing that we like to do though, is actually in the waiting room, have you do some sort of sleepiness scale. So go ahead quickly, how sleepy are you? So, Zero to three, what are the chances that you would actually doze or fall asleep in these contexts? So while just sitting and reading, while just watching TV, while in a public place like either a meeting or even a movie theater, being in a car for a long period of time uninterrupted like for an hour, just lying down, if you're allowed to lie down in the afternoon and you had in that, those circumstances, would you fall asleep? Just sitting and talking to someone, would you fall asleep? If you didn't have lunch at al uh, didn't have alcohol with your lunch, what were the, what's the likelihood you would fall asleep or doze? And if you were in driving and you just stopped at a traffic light, what would be the chance you might doze if you were stuck there for a few minutes? So quickly tally your score. So it gives you an idea of your sleepiness rating. People that often come to the clinics, like someone with narcolepsy or hypersomnolence, would likely have something like moderate or severe sleepiness. 
So we use the interview, we have all sorts of scales and um, surveys we can ask people in the waiting room to gather more information about their sleep. Between the interview and polysomnography, you probably have a good idea of why you are tired all the time, despite the fact you think you get enough sleep. So first of all, insomnia is a diagnosis we can give if your problem persists in difficulties falling asleep, or maybe you fall asleep very quickly, but you wake up early. You, you wake up at three and you just can't get back to sleep. So you're not getting enough sleep. If you fall asleep quickly, you just can't maintain your sleep. That's still insomnia. And what we think's going on in many of the cases of someone who has insomnia, it's a learned problem. You have learned that the bed is not a place to sleep. You have learned that the bed is a place to do many other things. And the many other things are activating things. So whether you are studying in bed, talking in bed, worrying in bed, interneting, whatever you can think of in bed, bed is no longer the signal to sleep. So what would be the cure? What's the treatment? One of the prime treatments is saying use the bed only for falling asleep quickly. If you can't sleep, get out of that bed. We want the bed to be that signal, that trigger for you to fall asleep fast. So the technique is specifically called stimulus control. You'll hear that recommended by most sleep clinics. This is a, a really effective way to manage most people's insomnia. Now what this does involve though is you going to bed, you don't fall asleep within a few minutes, you get out of bed, you go somewhere else, you do something sedentary, and you don't go back to bed unless you really think you could fall asleep. So read biochem, do something that you think is going to make you really tired, and then you go try to go back to sleep. If you can't fall asleep quickly, you get out of bed. And you keep doing this, and you might not sleep that night. But you get up, you go to work, you go to class, you stay up and then you go to bed at your desired bedtime and the next night you probably will hit that bed and fall asleep quickly. You have now one association of bed falling asleep quickly. But you have to have more pairings of that. So you have to persist and persist. And it might take a few weeks, but you usually can bat beat your insomnia by having that bed be that trigger for falling asleep. So you can't use your bed for anything other than falling asleep quickly. So stimulus control is a... Um, High recommendation from sleep clinics. Other things to clean up your sleep behavior, improve your sleep hygiene. Consistency is always recommended, mostly so that you have more cues. Okay, if I go to bed, it's 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. The time says I should be sleepy. I go through my same rituals. Make everything cues for falling asleep. And the more consistency you have, the more likely those triggers will help you sleep. Caffeine's a big issue for sure, and for those that have problems with sleep, sleep maintenance, we don't, we'd rather you not drink caffeine at all, but at the very least, keep away from it in the afternoon. Anything that you can do to make your sleep environment more comfortable and less disruptive, you have roommates coming in at all times of the night from studying, and you get woken up. Maybe you need earplugs, maybe you need masks to block out the sun, whatever you need, make the environment more conducive to sleep. Exercise might be great in the long run to help you sleep, but if you do it too close to bedtime, what's happening? A wire, your adrenaline rush after your big workout. So it might not be so great to help you fall asleep. And having, there's a lot of recommendations pertaining to taking a hot bath, hot shower, elevating body temperature 
so that when the body cools, that may trigger sleepiness, the having the drop in body temperature. If you don't have problems sleeping, drink all the caffeine you want. You don't have to abide by any of these recommendations. But if you have problems with sleep initiation or sleep maintenance, those are some suggestions. Other people just want a quicker fix. I can't wait weeks to do this stimulus control thing and hope my insomnia improves. I need to sleep now. And they want, oftentimes, some sort of sedative. And a benzodiazepine would likely be the kind of drug that would be prescribed. And I mentioned benzos under anxiety disorders and treatments. You do have to be cautious. They are addictive. And in particular, the problem with sleep is that you may take a benzo. It likely will make you feel sleepy, and it will likely make you feel sleep longer. So yes, it, it, they are sedatives. You'll sleep. But will you necessarily feel refreshed at the end of your eight hours? Not necessarily. And the longer you use the drugs, chances are you're not going to feel so refreshed because the benzodiazepines are actually affecting your sleep architecture. And if you look at your stages of sleep, you might not be getting as much deep sleep, your slow wave sleep, or stage three, as we would like. And we know that slow wave sleep is particularly important for that refreshing aspect of sleep. And you might be also losing some REM sleep as well as part of your, your architecture. What does that mean? If I slept eight hours, what stage am I in then? If I'm not getting as much REM and I'm not getting as much stage three, what am I getting? Two. And two is very light sleep and very not refreshing sleep. So quantity of sleep isn't always the game. It's, we want certain components. And benzos in the long run, long-term use, can really affect that. You still might get eight hours, 10 hours of sleep. But if you're not getting into REM, you're not getting into your stage three so much, you might not feel so good. There all are alternatives to benzos, they actually are called non-benzos, like our Ambien, known as Zol Zolpidem. And the thought is that these are less addictive, less problematic, perhaps, to your architecture, less risk of tolerance, less risk of, of withdrawal syndromes. But some do still have problems with this drug, similar to the benzos. And even if you don't develop any sort of addiction, you might have some odd behaviors emerge. Some say that when they've taken this, dr this drug, they end up getting up in the middle of the night, but they're still sleeping, and they go driving. So sleep driving while on Ambien. Probably not the best consequence of being on this drug. So you have to worry about some of these odd behaviors that might emerge while they're sleeping. So they're not perfect. They, a lot of sleep specialists will tolerate. They always want you to do behavioral. They want you to do stimulus control and sleep hygiene. But if you insist on a drug, they're a little bit more accepting of, well, okay, we'll try the, these benzo-like drugs. Ambien, Sonesta, Lunesta, all part of this. They're still prescription, but they're not as problematic typically as our benzos. Now, hypersomnolence. Hypersomnolence is diagnosed when you're someone who needs a lot of sleep, and even after your long sleep, you're still tired enough to need more, more, more naps, and you wake up from your nap, and you're still sleepy. Now, to diagnose this, you, this can't be explained by narcolepsy or any other reason. This is just, we don't know why your sleep isn't refreshing. You're getting your stages of sleep. It's not as if you're in stage two the whole time. You're just not getting refreshed. Some has, have suggested that, that perhaps your GABA, your GABAergic receptors, 
are hypersensitive to GABA, which means what? You're running around basically with a benzodiazepine-like effect all the time. It's like you're on alcohol all the time, kind of always sluggish, always sleepy. We don't really know what's at the root of this. But to give you an example of someone, this is a woman who sleeps nine hours per night at least, and then during the day takes two naps for an, an additional five hours of sleep. So that is 14 hours of her day sleeping, and she's still not refreshed. So she couldn't go, well, she couldn't stay awake in class, and this was really obviously disruptive to examinations and everything else when you, you can't stay awake. That is a lot of difficulties managing your life, getting up and helping your kids off to school if, you're, if you need this much sleep. So how do we deal with someone who is just excessively tired and we don't have a great explanation for why and what to do is we give them a psychostimulant, we give them amphetamine, we give them a drug that revs up their brain. So whether you can do drugs like Ritalin and Adderall or attention deficit stimulant drugs, there are other stimulants like modafinil which is more promoted for sleep problems, but it's the same type of amphetamine effect. We wake up your brain. So that's more medication managed. Yes. Likely, yeah. You know, just one day all of a sudden have good sleep. It's often lifelong. I've known one person that had that clear, I mean, and she was really, you think, oh, that's so funny, you sleep so much, but it was actually wrecking her medical school career because no matter, she couldn't, no matter how many alarms she woke, had to wake up for exams, no matter how many friends would wake her up, she'd just go right back to sleep and she was missing, it was all, at some point, you just can't excuse all these absences from expected activities. So it, it really can be disruptive. Narcolepsy, you have two types of symptoms. The first one that is required is that you do show that excessive daytime somnolence. You're tired. But the tiredness is manifesting as these sleep attacks. So it's not just, I'm so sleepy, I'm going to go lay down. This is just overwhelming. You're in class, you're in a meeting, you're someplace where driving. You shouldn't just fall asleep. But that's how irresistible they, their sleep attacks are. So they're tired and they can't resist that urge to sleep. In addition to that sleepiness, they need to show one of those three symptoms that are listed there. And many show all of them. And some don't always get tested to confirm. They don't always have a polysomnogram to confirm it. They don't always have a spinal tap to confirm how much hypocretin they have in their CSF. But if you were sleepy and you knew you had cataplexy, then that would be sufficient. But you, you need one, at least one of those sim symptoms listed there. So cataplexy. Cataplexy is, let me show you this. I really don't need sound for this. Oh, you're not even seeing it. Well, that is not a good setting. I'll see if I can show that when Ralph fixes this during break. But basically, it's showing a girl who has narcolepsy. Her cataplexy is manifested as basically the sudden loss of muscle tone. It's as if you're in REM sleep and you're supposed to be inhibited, paralyzed during it for the most part. But this is happening when you're happy. This is happening when you're angry. This is happy, happening when you're laughing. It's precipitated by strong emotion and it's just sudden loss of muscle tone. And it shows this girl just collapsing to the ground. It's not a sleep attack. She is awake. She's just motorically inhibited.
Now, not everyone, when they have a cataplectic attack, drops completely to the ground. It could just be weakness where maybe their head sags or shoulder sags. But sometimes it's full body. But cataplexy is referring to that sudden paralysis, basically, that should happen when you're in REM sleep, but it's happening when you're awake and you're emotional. So that is very characteristic of narcolepsy. Second, oh, other things to notice is that there's other indicators that REM sleep is a little odd. You've already talked about these in the previous lecture, the, the inhibition that persists even though you've just woken up or the visual perception that still occur, there's snakes on the ground, I'm awake and there's snakes, no. It's, pers it's persistent oddities of REM. They used to be considered really, really hallmark of narcolepsy, but now they're not required. They're, they're not an indicator. You can't go check mark for these symptoms. They are often seen, but they can be seen in other situations. So they're not diagnostic anymore of narcolepsy, but you still might see them. Hypocretin, if you wanted to find out what your levels were through a spinal tap, you likely would find very deficient levels to absent levels. And the suggestion is this, this, this neuropeptide is very important for feeling alert, for regulating sleep-wake cycles. And that somewhere during childhood, during teenagehood, that one's immune system destroys basically all the hypothalamic neurons that produce this, this neuropeptide. So if you had your spinal tap done and you could confirm deficiency, that would give you a check mark. And then the other possibility is that you have polysomnography done, nighttime, daytime. Nighttime, characteristically what you would show is that as you fall asleep, I just fall asleep and it's supposed to take you how long about to get through your first cycle in indirem? like 90 minutes, 80 minutes, 90 minutes before you're going to hit your, tenth, your first episode of REM, which is short. People with narcolepsy, they kind of expedite. They go right into REM within just a few minutes. That's very characteristic of narcolepsy. In addition, you could do an MSLT, which is you've already done your nighttime sleep study, and now get up, go take a nap. Try, go ahead. Now two hours later, nap again, go. Two hours later, nap again, go. Can a narcoleptic still fall asleep four times later, five naps later? Yep, they often still fall asleep, and they fall asleep quickly. And they, okay, so let me show you. Oh, yeah, you are seeing, yes. So this is someone who has narcolepsy. They've already had their nighttime sleep. This is naps in the morning, scheduled two hours apart. And what's notable is if you look at how long it takes people takes this person, you've already slept through the night and now you nap. Maybe if you woke up at eight or you got up and took a nap, you'd fall asleep quickly, but three minutes. Then nap to one minute, five minutes, two minutes by your fourth nap. That's, that's sleepy. <laughs> that's insane. You're sleepy. And so what you are seeing on average, that is very much It is very much what we say decreased sleep latency, that you're falling asleep way too fast. As well, you look at how long does it take before you hit your REM cycle, and once again, you're hitting REM much too quickly. So you have what they're called the sleep onset REMs. REMs are happening too quickly, and you're falling asleep too quickly. Those findings very suggestive of 
narcolepsy. So being, having those nap attacks, having cataplexy, hypocretin deficiency, or these characteristic PSG findings give you a diagnosis of narcolepsy. So what do we do with the narcoleptic? Stimulants, drug, typically to make them awake so they don't have nap attacks, they don't fall asleep in meetings or during exams or whatever you should be awake for. But then we have to usually try to treat the, the odd REM manifestation, so the cataplexy. Stimulants aren't necessarily going to do anything to stop you from losing muscle tone during the day. And our antidepressants tend to help suppress REM a bit. And if we suppress REM, we are hoping to suppress REM phenomenon like cataplexy. So it's usually dual drugs to manage the difference, the symptoms. The exception is using the drug Xyrem. Now Xyrem is very, I can't say controversial, but people are scared of prescribing that drug because it is the same drug as GHB. GHB is a drug of abuse. It is such a drug of abuse and considered so dangerous, risky, that it is highly, highly scheduled, highly controlled. So it is a schedule one substance. That's what the government says. Schedule one means dangerous, risky, and no, medic no medicinal value, you cannot prescribe it. If you're a Schedule I drug, it's not even prescribable, it's just bad, like heroin. But if you market GHB as Xyrum, government says, oh, okay, then all of a sudden it's useful, prescribable, less dangerous, and it's now a Schedule Three drug, which means only narcoleptics can get it. They only get it through one pharmacy in the United States that will dispense it, and only after the doctors have been educated, the patients have been educated, and there's a, like a FedEx type of delivery service to their house. I mean, it's very, very, very tightly regulated. And it's about five grand a month, so it's not an inexpensive drug. But this drug is thought to be very helpful for both the somnolence, that excessive tiredness, as well as cataplectic actions. Okay. So of these symptoms that are most diagnostic of narcolepsy would be the one symptom in there that actually is part of the, the requirements of narcolepsy, which is the sleep onset REM and, well, that, that sleep onset REM, excellent, because that is one of the criteria on polysomnography that is most indicative of narcolepsy. They very well might have some of these odd 
REM persisting phenomenon when they wake up, but they aren't diagnostic. The falling into REM is much more diagnostic. That's the best indicator. Okay. Sleeping over eight hours a day could definitely be hypersomnolence period, or it could be the hypersomnolence seen in narcolepsy. So A isn't, doesn't help you differentiate. We have disorders related to breathing that manifest as sleep problems. So we have OSAH and CSA. We have the obstructive and central sleep apnea. With obstructive sleep apnea, there is a blockade, at least a partial blockade or a full blockade of the airway. So that, and usually in the supine position, when things can sag over your airway, whether it be adipose tissue, big tonsils, big adenoids, whatever they are, you've got this obstruction. And this obstruction stops you from breathing, and then as a result of not breathing, what happens to your sleep? You could wake up entirely, or you wake up at least to a different stage of sleep. So I might be in my deep, slow wave, my stage three sleep, getting my restorative, refreshing sleep. But if I stop breathing, carbon dioxide levels rising, basically there's gonna be, an, there's going to be this, this catalyst to wake up to some extent to breathe again. Whether you wake up entirely or not, a lot of times people with OSA don't know that they're not waking up entirely. They're just getting bumped from a deeper stage of sleep to a lighter stage of sleep. And to give you an example, this was a medical student that I had many, many, many years ago who was tired all the time. He thought he was getting a reasonable amount of sleep, but suspected there was maybe something going on. So he had a sleep study done, and it showed that he did. He got six hours of sleep. And for a med student, that's nothing to scoff at. Sometimes that's really good. You're happy. Six hours, hey, that's a good night. Look how many times he was apneic. And apnea is defined as at least 10 seconds of not breathing. And his, some of his, at least 10 seconds, he gets counted as an apneic episode. And his, some of his episodes were like 70 seconds long in which he wasn't breathing. So this was happening hundreds of times of night. And when they saw that he stopped breathing, and you see all of a sudden that his architecture changed of his sleep, that he was in, say, stage three, he stops breathing, and all of a sudden he's in stage two. That happened hundreds of times a night, too. So it's saying that he got six hours. Look at his components of sleep. What's notable? That he is spending the vast majority of his, his time in a very non-restorative, very light sleep, and he's basically, and this was at a time when stage four did exist until they collapsed it with stage three, but the bottom line is your slow wave sleep is basically non-existent in this person. Now, he was a middle-aged, overweight medical student, man, but that's not always the case. You can have skinny, young women that have it as well, but it's a classic profile. And do keep in mind that snoring is an indication of a blockade, at least a partial one, but it's the quiescent period we're a little worried about too. The snore, 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 and then silence means blockade, full blockade. And then they usually wake up with a, or not wake up, but at least start breathing, more like a, a gasping breath. So you have an idea they haven't been breathing. Treatment, CPAP. CPAP is our, sorry. yes, CPAP. So it's gonna be sort of, an oral, oral nasal mask that basically shunts air down your 
airwaves. It's like a balloon, blowing up a balloon. You've got a saggy neck on the balloon, and you put enough pressurized air to inflate the neck, and inflate the neck of the balloon so that you can blow it up. So this is the same idea for someone who has got an obstruction. We force air down your airway and splints open the airway, and you can breathe. Another possibility is if your problem is only because you are a back sleeper, you're sleeping supine when things sag, let's not let you sleep on your back. So bumper belts, you can, they're uh, inflatable, so you can travel with them because you can deflate them. But it makes it harder to sleep in the supine position. And then there are devices that basically just shift your jaw so that things don't sag over your airway. The things might sag, but it doesn't sag over your airway. You don't have the block anymore. Some people have laser surgery and they cut out the extra tissue. CSA to me is a little more concerning. At least if I'm not breathing an obstructive air in OSA, what does that mean? I have an obstruction. This says my brain isn't sending the signal to breathe. So in central, that, that rhythm isn't happening. That drive to breathe stops for some reason. We don't know in the classic CSA. It's not because you're taking drugs that suppress breathing. This is just idiopathic. It's for some reason um, ventilation isn't happening as it should. The drive to breathe isn't. How do we distinguish between obstructive and obstructive apnea and central apnea if we did a sleep study? Because they're both going to say you're not breathing. They're both going to show oxygen desaturation. What you're really looking for is during your sleep study, you have a, a belt around your chest and you're looking for thoracic effort. You're looking at, are you trying to breathe? Because in obstructive, you are trying to breathe. There's just a block. So you're going to see movement against that belt, whereas in central, you're not going to see any movement of that belt. There won't be the drive. And this is typically, CSA is going to be treated with some sort of drug that's going to try to promote that drive to breathe. So definitely medication to help with that. We can have a problem with our sleep that involves the timing of your sleep. Your sleep is beautiful if you're allowed to go to bed when you want to go to bed and just let me sleep. So the night owl. I don't get tired till 3. If you make me go to bed at 11, I'm not going to sleep because I'm not tired. I'm tired at 3. And when I go to bed at 3, I fall asleep fast and I will sleep 8 hours. It's beautiful sleep. What's wrong with my sleep? The timing of my sleep is a problem because the environment wants me to be different. They want me to be at work when I want to be sleeping. Okay, so the problem with the circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorder is basically that mismatch between what my rhythm wants to do and what the environment says my rhythm should be doing. So classically, it is someone who is the night owl who just doesn't get tired till late. And this is a problem because they sleep till 9 and 10 in the morning. And if they're made to get up early, then they've been sleep deprived because they're not getting enough sleep. So what do we do with someone who has this type of problem with a circadian rhythm? We just try to take advantage of the circuitry that deals with setting our natural clocks. And if light is a huge part of setting our circadian rhythm, then we're going to capitalize on light. So we want to move your rhythm. We're going to expose you to intense special lighting for at least 30 minutes, up to two hours at key points in the day so that we can make you feel more alert at certain times 
so that hopefully you're going to get sleepier earlier as well. So as an example, here's this night owl. They are the 3 a.m. sleep, eight hours, beautiful, but I need, to, I need to go to sleep earlier. How do I do that? Well, the suggestion is, again, using light therapy, that you, to move your cycle up, move your rhythm up, you do need to expose for at least half an hour, sometimes longer. And they suggest that, okay, what you're going to do is naturally you are waking up at 11. So the first day, 11 o'clock, that's your normal wake-up time, get up and expose yourself to that light. Then do it again the next day. But the day after, we want you to now wake up at 10.30, expose yourself to the bright light. The next day, 10.30, expose myself to the bright light. Then the next day, move it down another half an hour. So now I'm up at 10. It's going to take a while to slowly try to get your rhythm changed. So every other day, you're going to wake up half an hour earlier and expose yourself to that light. And ultimately, if you do this long enough, that you are going to more naturally fall asleep at 11 and be awake at a normal time, like 7, 6. So anyway, phototherapy is capitalizing on the, the circuitry that promotes maintenance of your circadian clock. Parasomnias. Odd behaviors, something odd, not so much about the quality of your sleep, but some of the things that happen during your sleep. So non-REM sleep arousal disorder. Basically telling you it's not REM sleep. So likely stage three is when it's happening. And what kind of things that are odd that are happening in non-REM sleep? Well, we can have sleep terrors and we can have sleep walking. Those are the two major events that happen under this diagnosis. Somnambulism, I guess that makes sense. Som for tired and ambulism for ambulate. So they are sleep walking. That's an old term for it. It's not a diagno diagnosis, but commonly used. What happens in this phase? You are in non-REM sleep, which means you are walking around, you're interfacing with the world, you're talking, you are driving, you are cooking, you are eating, some people have sleep sex. They're like, I can't be pregnant, I'm a virgin. Well, during the night you visited somebody. So, and some you, I'm sure, have heard about even sleep murders. Oh, I didn't know I was asleep. And sometimes people have done things like that and they have been technically asleep. Sleep, and the thing about this stage, this is usually a stage three issue, is that when you wake someone up in this state of sleep, in non-REM, so usually stage three, they are confused. It's really hard to wake someone out of deep sleep. So when you wake them up, if you try to wake up a sleepwalker, they're going to be very bewildered. And the next morning, they tend not to remember that they were even woken up from their sleep, if it was a terror or sleepwalking. They're, the the encoding of the, those memories aren't so good. So classically, the next morning, even if you woke up the whole house screaming, and then someone comes in and, what's wrong, what's wrong? Well, this isn't REM sleep. It's not like they're going to tell you a nightmare. They're just, oh, I don't know. And, and then the next morning, do you remember waking up the house with all that screaming? Do you remember waking up the house because you were running from room to room? No, zero recollection of it. So very indicative of a 
of a slow wave sleep problem, not a REM sleep problem, but a slow wave sleep problem. That difficulty waking them up, that amnesia for the event in the morning. So we do have this non-REM sleep arousal disorder. We have the subtypes. One thing that ties in with your earlier lectures, remember that as you go through the night, the amount of REM you get and the amount of slow wave sleep you get, the amount of deep sleep you get, varies. So the first time I hit my, first time I have my sleep cycle for 90 minutes, I get a little bit of REM. And I'm getting a lot more of my deep sleep. Come the morning hours, I might not even go into deep sleep. I'm spending more time in REM. So you are disproportionate across your sleep cycles, which means that if you were going to be asleep, um, if you had sleep terrors, you would probably be having them, because this is a more slow wave sleep problem, you'd be having them more towards when you first went to bed. You're likely not having them towards wake up time because you're not even going into that stage of sleep at that point. Now, if you needed to treat this person, likely you, you would just change the environment a bit to make sure they're not sleep driving or sleep eating or doing anything potentially dangerous. And likely just live with it because oftentimes these are children and with development they just grow, quote, grow out of it. Their circuits mature and it's not usually a continuing problem. If you wanted to treat it, needed to treat it medically, medication-wise, benzos would be useful because we already know that an unwanted side effect of benzos is messing up our sleep architecture. That is typically reducing our slow-wave sleep in particular. So if we were going to use meds, we would try to capitalize on this side effect. If you spend less time in slow-wave, you got less of these parasomnias, these odd behaviors. Nightmares are often confused with sleep terrors because nightmares are scary too. Could you wake up screaming? Less likely you're waking up screaming, but you'd probably wake up like, oh, I just had a bad dream. Oh my gosh, someone was chasing me. And I, you'd have some horrible story that you're telling them about. And what you'll note is you will be telling the person likely about what was going on in your head at the time you woke up with your bad dream, your nightmare. The next morning, you might not remember exactly, oh yeah, I did have a bad dream, I can't remember all the details, but I remember waking up and I remember telling you that I had the nightmare. They don't have that amnesia for the event the next morning because they're in REM sleep, different characteristics in the REM sleep. You likely would orient quickly when you were woken up, you'd remember the event the next day, and you would also think, well, this, if this is a REM phenomenon, when should I be more likely to have nightmares? when I'm spending more time in REM, which is not when I first go to bed, not the first cycle of my sleep, but more toward the morning when I'm likely spending much more time in REM and less time in slow wave. So knowing the timing of the events can help physicians figure out sleep terror or nightmare. If there's any confusion, think about when are these happening? And then you can figure out if it's happening in the first part of the night or the latter part of the, the, the cycle you probably pinpoint the stage of sleep. And if you pinpoint the stage of sleep, you, you got it, you figured out the actual diagnosis. If you wanted to or needed to treat someone with nightmares, which isn't necessarily the, the case, or maybe you can do it through other means, but if you needed medications, 
then we are going to use the drugs that we know that might suppress Remabet. And as I mentioned, under narcolepsy, that our antidepressants can be used to help suppress Remabet. Okay, see if you can tell nightmares from sleep terrors. What do you think is the most helpful in discerning these? And a lot of these things really aren't going to help you differentiate them. In a nightmare and a sleep terror, you can feel scared. Sleep terror, probably more intense, but just feeling scared could be either. Age of onset, not that helpful. If it occurs at the same time each night, that doesn't help you either. I need to know when in the cycle, not if it's consistent. I need to know if it's at the beginning or end of the cycle. So usually I would want to know choice D. RSBD. This is a diagnosis when you fall into REM sleep and you're not paralyzed. You should be paralyzed except for breathing and eye movements. You should essentially be atonic. But this mechanism isn't working. So when they fall into REM and they have their dreaming going on, they can act out whatever they might be dreaming about. So you can see people start punching their bedmate. You can see people jump out of bed and hit the wall because they're running with a football. You can see injuries to oneself, injuries to bed partners. So it is, it is problematic. And you do want to confirm that you are doing these movements and vocalizations, saying you're not paralyzed, not atonic, that it is actually happening when you're in REM sleep. So a PSG would be good to confirm that this is actually what's happening. Because most people who are doing and punching and stuff, you might not be in REM, and you can move in these other stages. So this you need to confirm you're, you're in REM, and yet you're not atonic. This is not a great prognostic sign. Usually if you get diagnosed with this, it's suggestive that in the future that you're going to have other problems to worry about, that it's more associated with certain types of dementias, with basically degeneration. So it's often a hint that there's further problems in, on the horizon. So we'll, we'll talk about Lewy body dementia, we'll talk, we'll talk about Parkinson's dementia more towards the end of the course, but it is this particular sleep phenomenon is associated with a degenerative process. To treat this problem, you th they choose a benzo, and it's only this benzo. And why only this benzo? No idea. They just find that clonazepam is the drug that you give to someone who has this problem. And I have not heard a great explanation for why that benzo versus any other benzo or why it would work. It's just what they do. 
And obviously, you would probably want separate bedrooms and da 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 to make sure that people don't get hurt. RLS, restless legs. This is, this involves a creepy, crawly sensation that is so uncomfortable that you try to get rid of that creepy, crawly, electrocution type of feeling by shaking, by moving. So it's not so much the movement per se, you're moving deliberately because it's such an uncomfortable feeling. It's like having sciatica or this horrible tingly electrocution, bugs crawling on you, you shake, you move, but it's deliberate, you know you do it. So if any of you have RLS, you know because you deliberately move your leg. You're aware of the sensation and you move. And when this happens is often when you are trying to go to sleep. It's when you're laying down, ready to you know, watch a little TV and then go to bed, ready to actually go to bed. And it's during these sedentary activities that it often strikes. And if you have to shake your leg and then you try to relax, you have to shake your leg, it's going to cause you not to sleep. But you're very, very cognizant of the symptoms and that you're deliberately moving your legs to help get rid of that weird symptom. The weird sensation, they do give drugs that boost dopamine, so your, your Parkinson's drugs, but they've tried all sorts of other drugs too. But oftentimes they go right to a, a dopaminergic agonist of some sort. And again, why it improves that icky, horrible feeling, it, I'm not sure why, but that's what they do. Now in contrast, PLMs. PLMs, you don't know you have them because it happens during the night and you're not deliberately moving your legs. It's just twitching. You're just having these muscle contractions. So chances are you don't know you have PLMs, but who knows you have PLMs? Whoever's in the bed with you, because through the night, they're going to be experiencing and, and feeling the, the, the actual contractions. And the problem is, is that when they have this muscle contraction, that they do get bumped out of good sleep. So someone, once again, can sleep eight hours, say, I slept for eight hours, why am I tired? Well, if you're having these muscle contractions throughout the night that's bumping you out of deep sleep, you're in stage two most of the night and, when, and you're not gonna feel refreshed. So a, a polysomnogram is gonna nicely show through the leg electromyogram, gonna show twitch, 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 and the sleep stage arousal. You're gonna get bumped out of deep sleep. So they likely aren't aware that they're doing it. Bed partners will likely tell you, or a polysomnogram is going to tell you. Bottom line is the difference between RLS and PLMs. They usually just use the same drugs anyway, so it's not a huge differential uh, as far as clinically goes that you're going to use the same type of treatments. Now, what about those of you who only, when you're falling asleep, have a twitch? doesn't happen throughout the night. It's just, especially on days you're really, really tired or maybe you drink way too much caffeine, you lay down to sleep and whoosh, you almost wake yourself up. If you don't wake yourself up, you're annoying your, your bed partner because you have this twitch upon falling asleep. Those are called hypnic jerks. They're called sleep startles, lots of different names. They're considered absolutely so common and normal that it's not a diagnosis. So if you're familiar with someone who does that, like Duncan, then what is the solution? <laughs> the solution is get to your own side of the bed, hun, because it's, you're waking me up, that twitch. But again, with these, it's only upon the transition of falling asleep. It's not throughout the night. 
thought to be benign. The explanation I read recently, and I'm not sure it's memorable, I don't know how accurate it is, but the idea is that it's this reflex that evolutionary speaking, when we lived in trees, that if you fall asleep and you might be falling, that it might be worth sort of grasping on. It's like the moral reflex, sort of grasping on. So as you're falling asleep, and then you fall asleep. But that hypnic jerk not thought to be terribly problematic. So you've got your summary, summary charts, highlighting the difference between it. So quite extensively, take a look. And how about one question to end? So here you have someone who's tired all the time. We already know that excessive daytime somnolence is a classic presenting complaint of many different disorders. So the fact that the person's not complaining of anything odd, so if you're not complaining of leg discomfort, weird sensations, what have you ruled out? Restless legs, right? You, restless legs they know about. Now the fact that you have sleep stage arousals corresponding with muscle contractions of the leg, that leaves you pretty much just with PLMs. Since with restless legs, remember you know about it, you would be able to describe the sensation. So PLMs would be... <laughs> Sorry, the best choice. Now I don't know what I've done here. There, yes. Great, most of you recognize that if you're not aware of it, that pretty much rules out restless legs. Take 10 and we'll continue with trauma and stressor disorders.